Hey, we got a new rhythm in my house that I really, really love. Today, uh, Jane, my daughter, is six months old, like today. And here's the, yeah, everybody's like, woo, that's great. Here's the scary part about that. You only have six months till Christmas. That's the scary part about it. And so we'll always remember her birthday because of that, but only six months until Christmas. And so that means you'll start seeing uh, ads on TV in about two weeks, you know, for the, for the new holiday season. And, and we'll all get it. Uh, and then we'll get into the, you know, the, the, the fights about like when do you put up your Christmas tree and, and all that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, we have a six-month-old. And one of the things that I love, the new rhythm that we have in our house, is Jane's cues throughout the night and also in the morning. Like it's dark in her room, but she knows what time it is. So, for instance, every day at 5 a.m., she's up. And we hear her crying. She's in her crib. We go in there. Her eyes are sometimes still even shut, but she's crying, and she hears the door opens, and she opens her mouth, because she knows a bottle is coming. Like, she, literally, that's what I walk into, a baby with eyes open, but mouth, or, or eyes closed, but mouth is open. We feed her a bottle, she sleeps till, get this, about 8 o'clock, 8.30, like, we have great sleep now, but you know what happens at 8.30? We hear her crying, and I go in there, eyes are wide open, mouth is shut, and then she smiles, because what? It's time to get up. She knows that it's not 5 a.m. anymore, it's 7.30 to 8 a.m., and she opens her eyes and she smiles, and so we love that routine. We are, me and Emily argue with one another at 5 a.m., but at 8 a.m., it's like, I want to go up there and get her because we know that she is going to be happy, and it's in this posture that she naturally has, that it brings us a lot of joy in this season. And I share that because as we continue in our series, The Psalms of Ascents, we are going to be looking at what the psalmist is going to draw our attention to, which is lift your eyes towards heaven and see your heavenly father. The psalmist today is going to turn our attention towards our heavenly father. The lights got dimmer. That's okay, though. Um, to look upwards, right? Because this is, amen. This is what the Psalms of Ascents are. It was an upward trajectory that ancient Hebrews would take at least three times a year, right, to the holy city of Jerusalem. And they would ascend towards the holy city where they would go and worship. They would go remember. They would go celebrate. And we know that we, reading the Psalms of Ascent in 2023, read these as our souls are on upward trajectory towards God. That faith is a journey, right? That so many times faith feels like one step forward, two steps back. Sometimes we feel like we're ascending towards God, and sometimes we're like we're on a level playing field, and then sometimes it's like, has God completely forgotten about me? That we question if we're still even on the journey. And so we have songs for the journey. And today the psalmist is going to say, lift your eyes. And so I hope you'll turn with me to Psalm 123, only four verses today, Psalm 123. This is what the psalmist says, starting in verse 1. I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven. Now pause. Much like Psalm 121 where he says what? I look to the mountains, where does my help come from? And so many times within that psalm we think what? Our help comes from the mountains. You'll go into Lifeway, RIP Lifeway, but it used to be a thing. And you see what? A coffee mug. And you see a mountains on it. And what does it say? I lift my eyes towards the hills. It's like that's not what it's, that's not what it's saying. Pagan tribes would look to the mountains where their gods were. And the psalmist in 121 is asking that rhetorically, like, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Does my help come there? No. Because what's the next verse? My help comes from who? The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
And so much like that, the psalmist is once again in Psalm 123 saying, Lift your eyes, and not towards the mountains, but towards you, O Lord, who is enthroned in heaven. Now it's interesting that he starts here. Because this psalm falls under the genre of lament. And lament, as we know, is a period of immense sorrow or grief. We have a whole book in the Old Testament called what? Lamentations where the writer is lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. Like, literally, the temple has been destroyed. Remember last week we talked about going to, into the temple and how great that was for ancient Hebrews? Well, in Lamentations, the temple has been destroyed. And we know that lament is a time of intense sorrow or grief. But it's interesting that while this is a psalm of lament, which we'll see in a minute of why, he starts... He starts with this idea that he is lifting his eyes towards the mountains. So I have a question for you as we begin. Where do your eyes go in a moment of intense grief? Where do your eyes go in the moment of intense grief? And we know we have options, right? Satan isn't, like, clever. He, he tempts us with the same stuff. I mean, all of our sins fall into what? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the mouth, the lust of, the, like, like, if you think about the things that you've been struggling with all your life, if you've been following Jesus for 80 years or you've been following Jesus for a few years, what you know is that he's not new, he's not smart, he's just, well, deceptive. And he gets you tripped up on the same single things. And so when we are in moments of grief, where do your eyes go? Because if you're like me, your eyes, your emotions, your thoughts probably go to the same place that they've been going to. It's not new traps. It's the same old traps. What do you look at? What do you eat? What do you buy? I get it. There are times in life where there is intense sorrow and grief, and it's hard. But it's in these moments that we have Psalm 123 where we have to train our heart to sing a new song that says, I turn my eyes towards you. And where we're going this morning is what I believe is that the Lord would have us change our perspective. Psalms like this help remind us that much of life's sorrows are windows of opportunity to change our perspective. Much of life is. Example, this morning, um, I'm getting out of the shower and Emily says, hey, did you buy a hotel room in Atlanta? No, I did not. $400 in Atlanta. Hey, did you... Park in a parking garage in Atlanta. <laughs> no, I did not. Did you go to KFC? Now, that could have been me, but no, I did not. Not in Atlanta. Well, we woke up. My credit card information has been stolen, and there's like hundreds of dollars that someone used last night in Atlanta, and of course, that is so obnoxious, right? Like, that is such a pain because I'm, I'm about to go this week to Raleigh for a leaders collective cohort, and I'm like, my license is expired because I turned 29 a couple weeks ago, and I have no debit card. We'll just roll with it. It'll be okay. But it's so obnoxious, right? Like, they got to send a new card. I'm getting updates on my phone from Bank of America and Apple Pay. Like, your card has been frozen. It's no longer there. And it's just annoying. And then I was riding to church this morning, thinking through this sermon. I'm like, okay, windows of opportunity to change my perspective. This is silly, but what if someone just desperately needed a really nice family night out last night? It's like, you know what, because I think they went to like a, a Dave and Buster's too. Like, they had fun, okay? So it's like, what if they just took the kids out, KFC, get whatever you want, it's on me. We're going to Dave and Buster's. We can park real close. I'll pay for it. And then we're going to stay $400 a night in a hotel. What if they just had a really nice family outing that they couldn't afford? And you know what? I'm not going to pay for it. The bank is going to pay for it. So 
change our perspective a little bit, right? Windows of opportunity, when there's like, man, this is annoying, this is obnoxious, this is stupid. Windows of opportunity, that's silly. Because honestly, it's, it's not that big of a, a like issue for us. We'll just get a new card and move on. But we know that lots of times it's, it's not silly, it's, it's not funny, and our grief is what? Intense. A lot of times our sorrows and griefs are points of intense grief and trauma. And this isn't a sermon to slap a smile on. Like, you know what? Windows of opportunity. Make lemonade out of lemons. That's not what this sermon is about. The call to lift our eyes to the Lord is not to just slap a smile on. It's an invitation to change your perspective. It's an invitation to all of us. And it's deeper than that. But how do we do this? Because that's the question you should be asking this morning. You know life is hard. You agree it would be better to look to the Lord than looking to pornography or to fast food or to Amazon. You know that. But how do we do this when life is intensely sorrowful? Well, I believe that we have two points of application this morning. And the first one is this. It'll be on the screen. Change your perspective by changing your posture. Change your perspective by changing your posture. What is your posture this morning? I think all of us, if we were to open our mouths and I was to go around the room and I would say, where is God? You would say, God is above me. That God is higher than me. That God is greater than me. We would confess that with our lips, but do we confess that with our lives? Is there a gospel-driven dependence on your life this morning? Or is it a prideful, I got this? What is your posture this morning before the Lord? Is it a posture that says, God is above me, so I turn my eyes towards him? Or is it a prideful, I got this? Do you know this morning that there is power in your posture? There's power in your posture. In the posture that says, God, you are above me and I do not have this, there's true power there. But in the posture of pride that says, I got this, there is a perceived power there. Oh, you feel real powerful until life hits you. And you try to got, you try to got this. You try to have this, but you know that you don't. So how do we do this? How do we change our perspective by changing our posture? The psalmist sets his gaze on the Lord and his posture is what? This is what our posture ought to be, submission. Submission. Is your posture this morning a posture of submission? Because it's not just that we have a right view of, of God when we, we enter into this posture, but we have a right view of ourselves. And this is so crucial. Write this down. A right view of God leads to a right view of ourselves. When we understand who God is, and I love that we did not plan it, but the first song that we sang this morning is, this is who our God is. He loves us. He saves us. When we understand who he is, we begin to understand who we are. And the question that I have for you, I got a lot for you, but I'm just writing my notes because I'm too ADD. Are you playing God in your story and everything revolves around you? Or are you playing your role in God's greater story and everything you do revolves around him? You can't play the middle game here. Your posture is either everything revolves around me and I am God or 
I am playing a role in God's greater story, and everything revolves around him. One is actual power. One is perceived power. And how does the psalmist do this? Well, verse 2, look back down at it. This is his posture. Like a servant's eyes on his master's hand, like a servant girl's eyes on her mistress's hand, so our eyes are on the Lord our God until he shows us favor. The posture of servanthood. Eugene Peterson says that the moment we look up to God, we are in a posture of servitude. The moment we look up to God, we are testifying that you are above us and we are entering into a posture of servitude. To come under the authority of God is to at the same time come to recognize that you are not in control. What is your posture this morning? Like a servant on his master's hand, the psalmist says. Now, now here's what's interesting. This is a cultural piece that we're sometimes missing. Because we can sometimes, there's a gap here, right? Like, like we don't have servants in today's society. Servant-like submission is weird to us. Like we don't l- live in a period where there's servants in our household. And we would actually oppose any form of enslavement of another human being. Now, sadly, there are still 40 million slaves across this globe today in sex trafficking and and in other sorts of trafficking. But we don't live in a culture where I'm going home and there's servants there waiting uh, for my command. So there's a gap here. However, here's the reality that we live in. You might not have servants, but we all have a master. And I think this is what the psalmist is saying. It's not so much that he is the servant, even though that's really good and we're going to get into it. It's that he has a master and his master is in heaven. What about yours? What are you enslaved to this morning? And you might think, Adam, that's, that's really, really, really heavy. Like, that's kind of over the top. I'm not enslaved to anything, America. Like, we're free, okay? We live in the greatest country in the world. Like, I'm, I'm not a slave to anybody, really. Check your bank account. Check your calendar. I mean, I can't check my bank account. I'm out of it right now, but that's okay. Like, but check your bank account. You'll see very quickly what you were enslaved to. Because what? Where our treasure is, our heart is there also, Jesus would say. And so are you enslaved to your job? Your calendar is full of meetings, working long Saturdays. Missing family vacation because you're working hard for that promotion? Is your heart enslaved to a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in, but you're in it anyways? I mean, hey, let's just empty our pockets. How much time do we spend on our phones? And, and look, I'm 29 years old. This is not a sermon to ditch your iPhone, ditch a relationship, and not work hard in your job. Like, I think that honors the Lord. However, We're foolish if we think that sometimes we can take these good things and very quickly they can become bad things and keep us from the best thing. There's nothing wrong with our phone. There's nothing wrong with your spouse. There's nothing wrong with your job. But so many times we can become enslaved to those things. Why? Because we think we don't have masters and we do. All of us have master-like vices gripping our hearts every single day. So I ask you, who is your master? Eugene Peterson later says that the Christian life is not about fighting for freedom, but learning to live under a better master. 
there is only one master who has your best interest in mind. There is only one master who knows you so intimately that he can actually provide what's best for you. So many of us don't have this mindset when we think of God as master. We think of God when we think of master. We think of God like an in-the-sky patrol-like officer just waiting to strike us down when we get out of line. So many of us, because of background, because of upbringing, because of what you see on the news, because of what you hear from other Christians, you think of God (laughs) as this old man in the sky that is just waiting for you to step out of line so that he can send something into your life that will punish you. And if you've ever been told, especially by someone in my position with spiritual authority, that that is how God works, I am sorry because that is not how God works. You have been fed a lie. But so many of us, if we're honest, we think what? Well, I am dealing with this hardship. I am dealing with this thing because I have stepped out of line and God is patrolling the sky just waiting to knock me back into line. However, this is not our God. Do you know that the scriptures paint him more as a potter? (laughs) A potter, not an officer. And what's true about a potter making pottery? It's strategic. It takes time. It's formational. It's molding. That's a lot better than striking. God molding you and forming you and shaping you is a lot better than God striking you. Yet we have a master. And the psalmist confesses this. We have our eyes, he says at the end of verse 2, until you show us favor. Friend, there is not just power in your posture, but in your prayers. You want to change your perspective? Then change your prayers. At the end of verse 2, he says, we are not letting go until you say something to us. And the word favor here can best be translated as mercy. So what he's saying at the end of verse 2 is we are not looking away until you show us mercy. Why? How can a servant talk to his master like that? No servant gets to say, well, I'm not doing this until you do this. Unless, unless our master is a master of mercy. Do you know that this is who your God is? Like today, do you know that God is a master of mercy, that he is ready, willing, and able to extend mercy to those who pray for it. And it's not like the psalmist is saying, I'm worthy of it, so send it to me. He just identified himself as a servant. But rather, he is praying like this, not because he's so worthy of it, but because he expects his master in heaven to pour it out because that's just who he is. What do you expect when you pray? Well, number one, you need to change your perspective because if you're thinking that God is like a patrolling-like officer in the sky, then your prayers probably inform that. Your prayers probably reflect that. Maybe you begin with your, your prayers like, hey, I, I know you're really busy, and I, and I know that I've been bad this week, but if you could maybe just make my children behave, if you could just, I really want this promotion. I, I know you got to like solve world hunger, but like if you could, and so many times we pray like he is not a master of mercy. Do you pray expecting the Lord to do only what he can do, fully convinced that he is hearing you? Because so many times we pray like our prayers are hitting the ceiling or that they're falling on angry ears. 
And I believe we need to start changing our prayers to change our perspective. God, you are kind and full of mercy. Look upon me and my family with favor. Those are bold prayers. Those are bold prayers. And I kind of just wrote in my notes, I made this up. This might be wrong and you might think of me less, but that's okay. I think we need a holy arrogance when we pray. That we don't need to be walking into this throne room of grace, as the Hebrew writer tells us, timid and scared and wondering if he will hear us. But we need to have a holy arrogance. Saying, God, I am not letting go of you until you answer me. Not because I'm so great and I deserve it, but because you love me so. I won't look away. Because I am trusting that you are who you say you are and that you will do what you say you will do. Do you approach with this kind of holy arrogance? Tim Keller is famous for saying this, that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And he says, we have that kind of access. While we look as a servant would, we pray as a child would. I mean, think back. Think back to the prodigal son story. It's a really famous story in the New Testament that Jesus tells his disciples and the people listening. And if you remember in that story, the son, what, gets his inheritance, and he runs away, and he squanders it all. And then what? He's eating, or he wishes he could eat what the pigs would eat. That's his new job now. His father is rich. His father is powerful, and he leaves that kingdom, and he ends up wishing that he could eat what the pigs eat because what does he say? Even the servants in my father's house eat better than this. And so what does he do? He rehearses a speech on his way back to his father. The scripture says that he comes to his senses, and he makes his way back to his father, and he rehearses this speech, and what does he say in it? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so please just make me a servant. And then before he can even get there, what happens? His father sees him from a long ways off. He runs to him, and powerful men in the ancient Near East never ran. He runs to his son, and he puts the best robe, gives him the best ring, slaughters the fattest calf, and they throw a party. And it's in that story that Jesus begins to show us the heart of the father. That we, so many times, because of what we believe about him or what we believe about ourselves, we rehearse this as we come into Citizens Church. And it's like, I know I'm not worthy to be your son or your daughter because I got a lot to clean up. But if I can just come and be a servant. And your, I'm only fit to be a servant, is met with, you're my son and you're my daughter. Because this is what happens. As we begin to see ourselves as servants to our master who is in heaven, he looks at us as a father with children. And in this context, in this context of the psalm, they are in a difficult situation and they need a father. I said this earlier that this is a song of lament. This is a song of intense sorrow and grief. And maybe you're in there this morning. Maybe you're just in it this morning, surrounded by the hand of the enemy. You are desperate for a master of mercy to look at you as a good father and to respond to you as only he can because this is what is happening. Verses three and four, our last two verses today. What does he say? Show us favor, Lord, show us favor. Once again, that, that word favor could be mercy. So he's repeating himself. Show us mercy, Lord, show us mercy. Why? Because we've had more than enough contempt. 
We've had more than enough scorn from the arrogant and contempt from the proud. With this posture of servitude and a prayer of expectancy, the psalmist pleads once again for mercy and favor. Why? Because he's had enough. Have you ever felt like that? You've had enough. Whatever life is dealing you, you've had enough. How often life feels overwhelming. Work sucks. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your financial debt is just getting out of hand medically. It's one thing after the other. You name it. And you've had enough. The psalmist is saying this. And I want to encourage someone right here, right now, that the Lord knows and the Lord sees that you've had enough. Do you believe that this morning? Let's go here. Do you believe that it's okay to confess that you've had enough? I think it is. But it's not enough to believe that you can confess that. Do you believe that that confession falls on a master of mercy? That's what the psalmist says. I keep my eyes on you. I'm not letting go until you answer me. Why? Because I've had enough. He knows you've had enough. He just knows it. And his invitation, his invitation, listen up here. Like, listen up. His invitation is not for you to get more strategic in how to handle your difficulties. It's not his invitation. His invitation is not a five-step program to make your life better. That's crap. We don't need that. What we need is a true invitation that has no bearing on us, but an invitation that puts it all on his shoulders. Because once again, your posture of I don't got this, you actually don't have this even more than you recognize that you don't have this. So you need a better invitation. The invitation is to plead for his mercy and receive it when it comes, and it's going to come. Do you believe it? We're gonna end here, Matthew 11. You can flip there, it'll be on the screen. Maybe you just need to listen to this. You don't need to read it, you just need to, you need to hear it. Matthew 11, this is what Jesus says. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. That sounds like a really good master. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. That sounds like a servant. And I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is something you would put on an animal. And they would plow the field with a yoke upon their shoulders. And here Jesus is saying, my yoke, which if you just you know, saw a yoke, it's, it's huge, it's bulky, it's a lot of work for an animal. He's saying my yoke that you put on is easy and it's light and it's actually rest for your souls. What the psalmist sings in 486 BC, Jesus doubles down on nearly 500 years later. But it's interesting, we hear this invitation in Matthew 11, verse 28, but do you know what that invitation follows? It'll be on the screen. Matthew 11, 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard it in prison, John the Baptist, now when John heard it in prison what Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist is facing a situation 
in which he has so much pressure surrounding him, maybe he would say, like, I've had enough. It's so important to him that he sends his own disciples to go to Jesus, who he believes in and confesses as Lord. And in this moment of difficulty, he sends word to Jesus, and the disciples have to approach Jesus and ask what? So John wants to know, because he's had enough, are you who you say you are, or should we look somewhere else? And if you're Jesus, you're like, he asked what? No, you tell John, right? That's how we would respond. But you know what Jesus responds with? Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist has appeared. What? The man just sent his disciples. And Jesus, you're real busy, right? You're like healing people. He just sent his disciples to you <laughs> to ask are you actually who you say you are, or should I look somewhere else? You know what John is asking in that moment? Just let me know if I've completely wasted my life, because I'm not getting out of this prison. And Jesus' response is, hey, you know that no one is greater than John the Baptist. And then a couple verses later, he gives this invitation to all the people who his disciples are probably thinking the exact same thing. Like, what are we doing here? He gives this invitation to rest. Are you a person who has had enough? You know you've had enough, but you ain't looking up. You're looking down and you're looking out, but you ain't looking up. And I don't know why you're not looking up. Maybe it's because of what you believe about God. This whole Jesus that gives invitation of rest to someone who just questioned who his very deity is, that's so foreign to you because the only picture of God that you have is an angry old person in the sky that's just waiting to strike you down when you sin. And guys, sin is serious. We get that. I mean, Jesus went to the cross for sin. It's pretty serious. There's punishment and justice for sin. But on the heels of the gospel is the good news that he would not pay you back as you deserve to be paid back, but he would take your payment to the cross. He would deal with your sin. He just wouldn't put it on your shoulders. He'd put it on his. And now he is a master of mercy. Because he has defeated sin, because he has defeated hell, because he has defeated death, he can offer you life and life eternal. But you may have been fed a picture of an angry old man in the sky who's just waiting to strike you down or send something your way that you can't handle. And you need to hear today that Jesus' invitation <laughs> to a doubting man, to a man who questions everything about God that he has believed so far, Jesus' invitation to him is just continued rest. It's continued follow me. Do you know the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear? The opposite of faith is not doubt. John the Baptist had doubts. And Jesus said, well, just follow me anyways. The opposite of faith is fear is what Joby Martin says. Because fear cripples. You may have doubts this morning and you think that you cannot follow him. Yes, you can. Just pick up your doubts and follow him. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's fear. And if you're fearful of God, then you're crippled. <laughs> you're dead in the water. 
You're not going to lift your eyes. You're not going to be on mission because you're fearful. But if you're just simply doubting today that he is who he says he is, you're in really good company and you'd probably make a really good disciple. So the psalmist is saying, look, we're doubting. We've had enough. We've had enough. But, <laughs> Lord, I'm holding on to your coattails and I'm not letting go until you respond to me. Guys, we need that. Sermon in the sentence, he is a master of mercy and no matter the circumstance, keep your eyes on the Lord. No matter the circumstance, keep your eyes on the Lord. And you know what you say in response to that? Amen? No, you say that's easy for you to say. Because you know what's gonna happen? Monday morning's gonna hit me like a ton of bricks, possibly, and my eyes are gonna be on everything but the Lord. They're gonna be on a situation. They're gonna be on a context. They're gonna be on a circumstance. They're gonna be on a mountain that's in front of me. And I'm like, well, the Lord has forgotten me. Sunday was great, but Monday is crap. But no matter the circumstance, keep your eyes on the Lord. And if you're like me and you're like, that's really easy to say, <laughs> two pieces of application and we're done. And the girls can come back up. Two things, this is really simple, write it down. Be honest and be expectant. That's all I got for you today. Be honest, number one. In your posture, just be honest. Maybe your honesty this morning is, Lord, I think I got this and I don't got this. Or maybe you just need to be honest in your prayers and say, Lord, I am viewing you as an angry father, as an angry master. And Lord, change my perspective of you. Change my perception. May I actually believe that you are who you say you are in scripture. You need to be honest this morning. You need to be honest. And number two, you need to be expectant. Like you, you need to be expectant. Why pray if you don't think anything's gonna actually change? But if you are praying to a God who can move mountains and who can do exactly what he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, then you have all the reason in the world to pray. Be expectant that he is a master of mercy. If you expect that you will receive mercy in time of need, then you will pray for that. The psalmist says, like, I, I look to you who's enthroned in heaven. And I'm not letting go and, and, until you move. Why? Because I've had enough. And all of us in this moment could be like, man, that is such a good faith journey. That's who I am. That's why we have these songs. That's why they would sing it on their way to Jerusalem. Because when they got to Jerusalem, it was a picture that God is who he says he is. That God is doing exactly what he said he will do. But on the way, it feels like death. And so they sing this song. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be honest and we're gonna be expectant. We're gonna sing this song. And so our prayer team will be in the back. If you are in here this moment, this morning, and you've had enough, maybe the first step of changing your posture is going to someone and confessing out loud, you've had enough and you need someone to pray for you. Man, that would be a great next step. You just need to be honest with someone today. And that you need to receive a prayer of expectancy where you're going to hear, Lord, heal, Lord, change, Lord, save, Lord, transform. You're going to do it, not because we're awesome, but because you are the master of mercy. Maybe we need to all stand and just sing. <laughs>
We're going to sing about our gratitude towards our master of mercy. Whatever your next step is, whatever your next step is, I pray that you would take it with us. In all circumstances, keep your eyes on the Lord who is the master of mercy and who welcomes your honesty. Amen.